This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you're in here, let's open in our Bibles together to John's Gospel, chapter 21. John's Gospel at chapter 21. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one in the rack in front of you. It's black. It's got a hardback cover. If you don't own a good Bible that you enjoy reading at home, we would love to send that one home with you. Just take it. That's a gift from us to you. There's nothing we could give you that would be of greater value this morning than the Word of God. John chapter 21. In just a few minutes, we're going to start at verse 9. But by way of introduction, let me just tell you that this is the third meal. We're in this series, Welcomed by Jesus, looking at meals that Jesus ate with people. But this one is very different from the others we've studied so far. The other meals that we've looked at thus far were between and with Jesus and people outside of his group, his, his inner circle of friends. This one we studied this morning, this is an intimate meal. Jesus with his best friends. It's simple. It's unceremonious. Yet this meal is pregnant with significance. You could easily make the argument that this is, of all the meals that we've looked at so far, the most important one that we'll study. And maybe, maybe outside of the Last Supper... This might be the most important meal that Jesus ever ate with with other people. The meal quite literally changed the world and it sets the pattern for how Christians approach and can view Jesus. So there is much for us in this simple, you, you wouldn't even think of it like a meal like the other ones because it wasn't a banquet, it wasn't a grand time. It came about very simply. So many people, what they'll do is they'll look at Jesus, and if they hear the claim and believe it even, that he is God, they will believe that he must be far away. He's got to be hard to approach. They might even tell you that they think he, he must be angry with them. But what I want us to see this morning is if that's what you think of Jesus, that he's far away and that he's hard, then you're entirely wrong. Jesus is indeed God. But there has never been anyone who wants to come nearer to you or to love you so completely as Jesus does. And this is what this, we'll just call it a peculiar meal with Jesus teaches us. This shows us the way that Jesus is with us. And the way that he is with us, he says at least three things that I want us to see here this morning. First, the way Jesus is with us, the way he approaches us, is he is the one who draws us in. Jesus, then second, is the giver of of ultimate grace. And third, after he's drawn us in and given us grace, he promises to go with us and be with us from that moment forward for the rest of really eternity. So that's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to see the draw of Jesus, 
the redemption of Jesus and the forever presence of Jesus. The draw of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, and the forever presence of Jesus. So let me read, follow along. I would encourage you to always, when I'm reading, as gifted as an orator as you think I am, I want you to read these words for yourself because the power is in the words and the rightly divided word of God has amazing, transformative power. So John 21, starting at verse 9, follow along as I read. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Three things, one more time. The draw of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, the presence forever of Jesus. So first, Jesus draws us in. So let's just start with, with, with that. We picked up this narrative with the disciples coming back from shore, to shore from fishing. And he, here's where the disciples are right now, not just geographically, but, but sort of emotionally. Uh, Jesus has gone to the cross. He's died. He's been resurrected. This is not the first time that, that the disciples have seen him or reported seeing him. So he's, he's appeared to disciples in, in various groups, at least twice already. We, we know that it's the third time that they've seen him. So they already know that Jesus didn't stay dead. But just put yourself where they are. They are still trying to figure all of this out. We'll get into this in a few minutes. But this is probably somewhere a little over a week to like three, four weeks after Jesus' uh, resurrection. The, the timeline is not always clear on the events in order that they happened or how long after the resurrection. So this is just mere weeks after the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so they're just asking, like, what does it mean that he was resurrected? 
They want to know, what are we supposed to do now? So this is, this is sort of an unstable time for them. They're still just, this is all so fresh. And so what they're doing is while they're just trying to get a, a handle on everything that just happened, they did what probably a lot of us would do, is they just go back to what they know. And these men were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. If you read the first verse in this chapter, you would see that they were on a, a place called the Sea of Tiberias. Same thing, Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias. It's part of the Jordan River system. It's in northern Israel. You can still see it on a map today, although it has usually a couple of other names. Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, it's the same lake. And it is a lake. It's called a sea, but it's a freshwater body. So most of the disciples, that's what they were doing. Not all of them, but most of them were commercial. That's how they made their, their living was by being fishermen. And they come from a few of theirs. There's these small Jewish towns. With, it's anywhere between 1,500 and 3,000 or 4,000 people that, that sort of circle the Sea of Galilee. And, it, and it's a major source of, of food and work for the region. And what they've done is they've gone out at night, which was the preferred way to, to fish at, at this point in history, and they've caught nothing. And around the time that the sun comes up, they see a man on shore, and he's calling for them to throw their nets out over the other side of the boat. And so first, let's just get a picture of, of that. Uh, these boats weren't large. This was not like some huge commercial fishing vessel. You know, throwing the, the net on the other side of the boat would just be a few feet on the other side. It would be sort of like, you know, if, if you're cold in one pew in here, thinking that if you just move over a pew, you'll warm up. I mean, it's, it's not far away. But they do, and they have such a large haul of fish that, that you, you, you almost have to say the net didn't buckle because it was, but, but it was such a, haul, a huge haul of fish. And it's when they do that, that actually happened in, in another earlier time in Jesus' ministry with them. They catch all these fish, and they realize it's the resurrected Jesus calling to them. So actually what Peter does is he jumps in and swims to the rest of his, to Jesus, and the rest of the disciples bring the boat out, out, out shore, on shore. So what John is careful to do now, that's kind of where we've, where we've been up until this point, is he's careful to tell us that Jesus has made a charcoal fire. Always look for details in Scripture. Scripture's got great details if you pay attention. So it's on purpose. It, it sets up all kinds of, of callbacks, and John loves callbacks. The last time there was a charcoal fire, and John wrote about that, was in the courtyard where Peter denied three times being one of Jesus' companions. And so Jesus is going to bring that up in a few minutes. But first he says, you know, bring a, bring a few fish and let's have a simple meal together. Let's have breakfast together. And after he says that, you can just kind of see as we read, you can sense the uneasiness of the disciples. You know, there's this weird, remember, they, they don't want to ask him who he is because they already know that, that kind of thing is happening. And so you can kind of tell, we know who it is. Let's not ask. This is weird. We're, we're not just, they're just not sure what to do right now. And, and why would John include that detail? Why would, why would he say they, they knew who it was, but they didn't want to ask that kind of thing? I think it's because what they're, what they're doing is exactly what we've said. They're desperate to understand what's going on. They want to see, well, what is Jesus going to do now? He's been resurrected. What happens next? What's he going to say to them right now? 
I think, I think for one thing, what they're all starting to do is process that whatever they thought was happening with Jesus in Jerusalem, whatever they thought Jesus was going to do on the cross, they had a very misguided idea. I think they also wonder, is he going to be mad about it? Like here he is standing on the shore, like are they about to get chewed out right now? What's he going to do? And so contrast all of that, that, just wondering what's going to happen, contrast all that with what is Jesus actually doing? He's not berating them. He's welcoming them. Come, I've made a fire. I've set bread out. Let's take some of this fish and let's eat it together. So they wonder, is Jesus angry? Jesus says, no, I'm not angry. Come, sit with me. I've prepared a place for you. I've prepared something for us to do together. Meals with Jesus are often a picture of the gospel. And this is how the grace of God works. It doesn't start with you or me. The grace of God starts with an invitation. Theologically, first it's that God decides to offer grace. But the first thing that we know about in this process, the the first experience we're ever going to have is what theologians often call the gospel call. Romans 2.4 says that God leads us to repentance by kindness. That's how God draws us in. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He doesn't demean. He draws us in with kindness. So Jesus doesn't stand on the shore and yell out from the, you know, yell out from the beach while they're in the boat, hey, losers, get over here. I'm going to make it right. Again, come and sit with me. I have prepared a place that we might dine together, that we might talk together. He could have said, hey, at the slightest bit of adversity, you guys bailed. What kind of friends are you? He says, friends, come. Friends, let's be together. He's also saying, we just have this detail, throw your net on the other side. Big haul of fish. Again, Jesus said, maybe it would be helpful if you were a little hungry right now. Maybe that would teach you something, but no, he says, I'm going to provide for you. This whole meal is about Jesus extending grace, every bit of it, to the disciples. It starts with, throw your nets on the other side. Come to me, I want you to be near. All of it is the grace of God. So when you stand back and look at it, one of the most astonishing parts about not not just the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but, but go all the way back to Jesus' birth is that Jesus could have, God could have left us on our own. He could have just said, you've messed this up, you figure it out. But all the way back to the birth of Jesus, really all the way back to to just shortly after sin enters the world, God is making a plan to bring people back to himself. So Jesus is born among us. He lives among us. He's deserted by these men. He dies alone. We're the ones who leave him. He's resurrected and he comes back again to give these men grace. He's welcoming them to eat. 
And that's his heart. That's the heart of God. It's the heart of Jesus. It's the heart of grace. It's the reason he was born. It's the reason he said everything that he said, did all that he did. It was to bring grace. He was grace in the flesh, and everything he said was for the sake of grace. And friends, that that same invitation that's given there on the beaches is extended to every single one of us. Come sit with Jesus and receive his grace. And there's two main things that'll hold you back from that. I just want to make sure we're not doing either of them. One thing that's going to hold you back is believing that, that you can't possibly be given grace. That whatever is in your past is just, is just too big for the grace of God, and that's a lie. It's one that doesn't just leave you alone. If you believe that lie, you're not just left alone. The greater travesty in believing that what you've done is too big for the grace of God is it actually undermines the very nature of who God is. Folks, think of it this way. It's actually blasphemous to, to God to believe that what you've done is too big for his grace. You get that? It takes away the very godness of God to believe that you are outside of his, you've, you've done too much for his grace, to believe that you could be outside of his grace. He has more than enough grace. Who are we to tell him he's wrong? Who are we to ever say, yeah, it's too much? No, no. He's got more than enough grace. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I want to make sure you're not doing is, is just the exact opposite. I want to make sure that you know that you need grace. If error one's believing that God doesn't have enough, error two is that thinking that you don't need any in the first place. Ephesians 2 says the only way that any of us will be saved is by grace. It's never a result of what you can do to earn his favor. No one is outside of grace, and no one is fine without it. Need grace, and Jesus invites you to come and receive it. So that's the first thing. Jesus invites us in. Second thing is he restores. Now, this is especially true with Peter, but it's for all the disciples. So they're around the charcoal fire. And remember, remember on the night that, that Jesus was seized by this angry mob, Peter follows at a distance. He's warming himself by a charcoal fire, and he's asked three times, well, you, you must have known Jesus. He said, your accent kind of gives you away. You're probably of his people. And, and three times he, he basically says, one time it says he calls a curse down on himself. and says, you know, may, 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 I, may I be accursed if I even know this many, he's lying, just straight up lying about this. And so Peter's mind goes back to this. He vehemently denies Jesus. And Jesus now is going to ask him three times if he loves him. And the repetition, you know, that, that matters. So look at verse 15. Let me just read a few more of these, a few of these verses over again. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than, the, than these? So this is an ambiguous way to ask this question, kind of, right? Do, do you love me more than these? Obviously, Jesus means, you know, more than the fish, they just say. But is, here's the question, is Jesus asking Peter if Peter 
loves Jesus more than Peter loves these other men? Or is Jesus asking, of all the men sitting on the shore eating breakfast, does Peter love Jesus the most? Right? You get that? I think it's the latter. And based on what Jesus is doing here, I think this is really important. I think the answer to this question is really important. In Matthew's gospel, at the end of the Last Supper, Jesus tells the disciples that they're, they're all going to fall away from him that very night. And trying to be valiant, Peter does what Peter usually does, and he stands up and he says something that's just foolish, foolhardy. So Peter makes this bold declaration that even if these other disciples fall away, I will never do it. Never happen with me. And that's when Jesus says, Peter, your denial is going to make you the guiltiest of them all. Now, we don't know what went through Peter's head when Jesus asked him this question, do you love me? But I bet it was that. I bet you Peter remembered when he stood up at dinner and said, even if all these men fall away, Jesus, not me. And I believe he remembered I said that. Then Peter said to him, so we're picking it up, Back in middle of verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, again, the, the, the last time that, that Jesus asked Peter a question like that, Peter puffed up his chest and, and told Jesus how strong and brave he was. What's happened now is Peter's been humbled. But that's a good thing. In fact, it was what Christ knew must happen if Peter was going to do the work that Jesus was calling Peter to. Peter had to be humbled. All right, the rest of this. So so Jesus said, feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. Third time, do you love me? Peter was grieved by that. Again, grieved because he was remembering why he needed to be here. What had happened? So then then he said, Lord, you you know everything. You know that I love you. So Jesus then says, feed my sheep. So sometimes what you may have heard is is Bible teachers will draw a lot of attention to the way that these questions are asked and and answered. They'll they'll kind of get into the the Greek words here and they'll say, uh, especially with the word love, there's a lot of meaning in, in the different uses of the word love. If you've heard this, Now, what you've heard is Jesus is using one word for love, one Greek word for love, and Peter's using another. Uh, And until what happens at the end, Jesus switches to the word Peter has been using the whole time for his last question. And there might be a little something to that, but but truthfully, if there's anything there, it's just not much. And that doesn't mean that if you've heard that from Bible teachers, you've been misled, Uh, But I mention it because what ends up happening when you do that, and you you sort of get into that, uh, what D.A. Carson called an exegetical fallacy, what you do is you are drawn away from what Jesus is really doing. There's there's a way to just get too into the, the, the word study of it and miss the broader picture of what Jesus is doing. Peter made a huge promise to Jesus not very long before this. 
Again, this is just a few weeks at the most after Peter's threefold denial. And here Jesus is saying, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. This is Jesus' way of, of, of not only saying, so don't get lost in the words they're using. What Jesus is doing here is saying, Peter, I forgive you and I'm still going to trust you. This is huge. Have you, have you ever been betrayed by a friend in, in a way that cut really deep? Something ever happened, perhaps where your character was called into question, a, a, a lie was told about you. Maybe there was a situation where, where you had a friend that you expected to stand with you or stand up for you. And what seemed maybe like it was just you and, and your friend, even having a good friend would have made all the difference in whatever you were going through, your friend abandoned you. They let you down. Imagine if that happened to you, how difficult it would be to trust that friend again, trust that person again. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Peter has abandoned Jesus. So Jesus is not just asking one time, but he keeps asking him because he wants, to, he wants Peter to remember those three denials and he wants Peter to see in, these, in this threefold repetition of this question, forgiveness and grace. And the same thing is possible for you and for me. Even if you've denied Jesus, if you think I've denied Jesus, I've blown my chance with him, Jesus is still coming to you to ask, do you love me? And when you answer yes, he will always say, then come back in. Come back into the fold, tend the sheep, feed the sheep. Come back in and do the things that I've called you to do. Be the person that I've called you to be. So Jesus will never stop inviting you to trust him. Jesus will never get frustrated and say, that's enough, that's it, I've had it with you. He will keep inviting you back. I can't prove it, but I think Jesus was actually eager to have this breakfast with Peter. He wants to ask you that question and have you say, you know I do. He wants to ask you the question, do you love me? I think he wanted to have this conversation with Peter. And if this is something, it's, it's a conversation that you've been holding up. He's eager to have this conversation with you. He invites us in by grace, restores us by grace. Last thing that Jesus does is he goes with us. So let's look at how Jesus never leaves us wherever we go, in every circumstances, in every circumstance, he will be there. Uh, so John tells us that the, the commission that Jesus gives Peter specifically, he says, hey, here's what's going to happen. When you were young, you dressed yourself. When you were old, you're gonna, you're gonna, somebody else is going to dress you and they're going to lead you where you don't want to go. And then he clarifies, there's this parenthetical in there. He said this to tell him about the kind of death he was to die. Now, it's unclear how much Peter understood in the moment, but I think it's fair to say that Peter was not under the impression that from that point on, much about following Jesus was going to be easy. 
Now, the disciples had a hard time understanding what Jesus was telling them about suffering and his discipleship and following him while he was still alive and going toward the cross. But after he died and he rose again from death, the Holy Spirit opens the minds of the disciples and they can now understand what he's been teaching them. And once they saw the way things went for Jesus, they just had to know that, that in, in a lot of ways it was going to be like that for them as well. And folks, we need to know the same thing. Following Jesus, Jesus even used this language. He said follow, to follow him means to take up our own cross and walk in his way. And we know that Jesus carried his cross to his death. And so there's no way that you can read the words of Jesus about what it means to be his follower and draw any other conclusion than that the way of Jesus is not the way of fortune and prosperity. Following the way of Jesus is the way of denying the world, of denying yourself, losing yourself so that you will gain something far more important. And, and when I say that, my, my purpose is not to scare you. But my specific calling up here is, is to lay out for you the plain teaching of God's word. And, and church, I, I have to tell you, us, all of us, that the plain teaching of God's word is to say that following Jesus is often going to be hard. It's hard to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean there's not greater joy in it. It doesn't mean that there's not a reward that, that's at, at different places in Scripture called things like a crown of glory that never fades away. It's better than anything that the world has to offer. But it doesn't mean that it's not difficult. So... Peter is told that, that he's going to, to die a certain way. Tradition holds that Peter was also crucified, and, and some traditions even record that Peter didn't want to, didn't think he was worthy of death in the same way of Jesus, and so instead of upright crucifixion, he has to be crucified upside down as an act of submission to Jesus. Now, I believe it's to kindness that, that God isn't going to put to you and me and probably most of us, honestly, probably not any of us in this room, uh, the choice between life and death for following Jesus. But let's do a couple things. Number one, let's understand that that's not the case for our brother, many of our brothers and sisters around the world. There are people every single day who following Jesus is a choice between their life and their death. That's not something from the ancient world. That's real and it happens every single day in the world. But second even if that choice might not be posed to you literally, that's still what you're asked to do. There's a cost to following Jesus in all the biblical language is will you deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me? If you think you can have Jesus and the world, what the Bible says is you'll get a little bit of the world, you'll see, you'll see how worthless it is, but you'll find yourself without any of Jesus. You cannot have the world and Jesus. You need to choose. And let's just go in with eyes wide open. The choice to follow Jesus is hard. It doesn't 
mean it won't be great. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to, as much as you want to, as much as you might want to, know that that's just going to put you at enmity with the world. It's going to mean you're not going to fit in. It's going to mean that you're going to be judged for your faith in Jesus. It's going to mean that people are going to be hostile to you. For, even though you've been loving and gentle and kind to them, people will for, will for some reason be hostile to you, and you, you won't be able to figure out why. Some people are just going to condemn you without even knowing you because they know that you're with Jesus. Listen, let's just call it what it is. You're going to love people. But because as a follower,